We're so glad you're here today. Welcome uh, to EV Free Fullerton. Uh, these silver uh, trays up here mean that we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, together later in the service. That also means we take two offerings. Uh, we do this one, and then at the door, as you leave, we take an offering for something called the Compassion Fund, which is for those that are hurting and needy in our own community. Portion of those funds also go to OC United, we talked about last week. So, I want to make, you, uh, make sure you know about that as you leave. Also, um, we host, by God's grace, we host about 5,000 adults, students, and kids every weekend on this campus. And that requires hundreds of people to participate. And so, we have a particular need in a ministry called Host Ministries, which is what it sounds like. Those are the folks that put the guests. Uh, kind of our guest guides, the folks that help new people, they help park cars, they help do uh, all of the infrastructure stuff that makes coming here easy. And so uh, if you are interested in that, we have huge signups out in the back and uh, would love for you to participate. Uh, lastly, I want you to turn to the book of Galatians chapter 3. We are going to be, uh, we're going to start there in Galatians chapter 3. We've been talking a little bit about what what exactly we're doing here. I mean, the, the church isn't um, a place, it's not a program, it's a called out people uh, among whom God dwells and through whom God puts himself on display. And so uh, the church is far more than just this hour weekly singing event that we, uh, that we participate in. And so we've been trying to recapture a bit of our imagination about what this is to be uh, together. And one of the interesting kind of facets of history, if you go ahead and put this up on the iPad, is uh, in AD 100, there were about 25,000 Christians, right? So we start from 120, we go to 3,000, 25,000, about 70 years after Jesus had died. That goes, in the next 200 years, that goes upwards of 20 million by the time 200 years is over. And so a, a question that a lot of historians and sociologists and history of religion folks ask is how did this happen? How did they grow from a small movement to the most significant religious force of the Roman Empire in 200 years? And, and we know, and, and we know that they did it under really difficult circumstances, right? They, they didn't have uh, any church buildings. They were, for some of this time, classified it as an, uh, an illegal religion. They were the early Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. They were accused of cannibalism because they'd eat the body and blood of their founder. They didn't have the scriptures as we know them, right? I mean, letters would circulate, but you didn't have like 18 versions of the Bible sitting on your phone. Uh, they didn't have institutions, so they didn't have denominational organizations or seminaries. They didn't have seeker-sensitive services, youth groups, or worship bands, and... And they actually made it really hard to join. Because what they would do um, would be they would, uh, you would indicate an interest, and then they would watch you for nine months to 12 months to see if your life and conduct was befitting uh, someone who would bear the name of Jesus. And so in light of all of that, how in the world did the church grow from 25,000 to something, you know, up to 20 million in 200 years? The obvious and truest answer is that, well, God blessed it, right? That God, his spirit was at work, miracles and, and, and authoritative displays of power were all over the place. I mean, of course. But there are also elements in the Christian community themselves that were really compelling to the Roman world around them. 
One of those elements we talked about last week, their care and benevolence of the poor and the needy. Not only taking care of their own poor, but the poor of wherever city they were finding themselves. We want to look at another element of that today, that there was something unique about their life together as they gathered around the Lord's table to celebrate something we call the Eucharist that was unbelievably compelling. So to get this in our minds, I need to engage in some very messy handwriting. Uh, Forgive me for this. Uh, All of my children uh, write uh, more nicely than I do. I don't know what happened along the way, but... I want to I I spend five minutes and I want to get in your minds the social structure of the first century Roman Empire. And I want to do that so that when we read some passages that, 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 that you get how revolutionary these passages would have sounded to people immersed in this. So there were all kinds of hierarchies and distinctions in the first century Roman Empire. So the first and biggest one was Roman citizen... Citizen versus non-citizen. That's hurtful that you're laughing at this right now. So Roman citizens, you had different classes of Roman citizens. If You had a group called the patricians. Patricians were descended from some of the founding families of Rome. And patricians uh, were kind of the upper classes. They, they occupied classes called the senatorial class, the equestrian class. Uh, these were folks that were the smallest part of the Roman Empire, but they held almost all of the land, almost all of the votes, and almost all of the power and wealth in the empire. Under non-citizens, you had, you had all kinds of distinctions. And, and folks who were non-citizens could become citizens through military service. Uh, these folks were often called plebeians. Uh, no, no, not the, the non-citizens. Under citizens, you have patricians and you have plebeians. Patricians, upper class. <laughs> plebeians, lower class. Come on, this is helpful. I'll type it up next time. All right, so you could become a citizen if you were not a citizen in all kinds of different ways. The idea, though, was that you're... you're place in social status was fixed by your ancestry and it was fixed by your wealth. So every now and again Rome would take a census and they would add up how much land you held and whatever value of land that was that placed you in a certain social order. So you have citizens, you have non-citizens. You also have male and you have female. See, you can read that. To be a man in Rome If you were the head, the oldest male of a family, you had legal rights of life and death over the rest of your family. You were the head of the household in the the most patriarchal sense ever in the history of the world. So so you um, you could dismiss slaves, you could hire slaves. If an infant was born into your family, if that infant was not... Um, if, if you wanted a boy and it was a girl or if it was in any way deformed or misshapen, I mean, all the, all the head of the house had to do was turn his back and that child would be cast out of the family. I mean, he had the power of life and death. The, and, and the oldest male. So if you, if you were a male and your dad was still alive, he still had power over you even if you, you were in your 20s, 30s, 40s. I mean, the oldest male of that family was the patriarch and held all the authority. To be a woman in that world, was to be considered a step above property, 
But she had no, no, even if she was a citizen, she couldn't vote. She couldn't hold office. What she could do, and this was it, was share in her husband's or father's status. So if your husband or father was high-ranking, you would share in that status. If they were low-ranking, you would share in that status. Not, not a lot. Now, if you were upper, upper, upper crust, some of those women had significantly more freedom. But by and large, women were just an extension of the head male. Now, you also had, you had veterans and you had civilians. Rome, one of the genius things Rome did is they would give citizenship to people that served 25 years in the military. They would give citizenship and a piece of land. So, uh, and they would go send all of these veterans to the outposts of the empire. So places like Philippi was a Roman colony. And it would be a, a significant portion of the population would be the Roman veterans of their legions. And then you'd have the civilian population, right? And whoever controlled the legions controlled Rome. I mean, that's how significant the legions were. You also, uh, you also had, let's see, citizen, non-citizen, male. Oh, you had slave and free. To be a slave was to be property. You literally, you were part of land. So you bought a parcel of land, that land came with slaves. That's just how the thing worked. Slavery is different uh, than how we think of slavery. It wasn't ethnically based at all. It was, listen, we conquer your nation, you become our slaves. So you're sold into slavery. If you're the child of a slave, you are a slave. Uh, If you uh, were one of these infants that were cast out of a household, slavers would come by and pick up these infants that had been abandoned and raise them to be slaves. Now, you could get out of slavery depending on how the kindness of your master, or there were some legal things you could do. So you had a, a group of people that were freed slaves. And, and depending on how they were freed, they might be able to come, become citizens or not. So you have all these citizen, non-citizen, and even under citizen you have plebeians and patricians, and then non-citizens, you've got the male and female, and you've got veterans and civilians, and you've got slave and free. You've got Jew and Gentile. One of the bigger divisions in the ancient world, right? And many of us are familiar with this one. To be a Gentile just means you're not Jewish. And though there were exceptions to this, in the first century, Jews and Gentiles didn't like each other very much. In fact, some later rabbinical writings will say things like this. Gentiles were created by God to fuel the fires of hell. Awesome. It would be illegal, according to some rabbis, to help a Gentile woman in childbirth. Because you would be adding a Gentile to the world. If your Jewish daughter married a Gentile man, you would hold a funeral for her. Kid you not. And when you would exit Gentile territory and enter back into Israel, you would shake the dust off of your robe and your feet to not take their taint into the Holy Land. I mean, it was, and the Gentiles, they didn't treat the Jews very well. Right? There, are, there are numerous recorded incidences where either the Jewish worship of their God in their unique ways was restricted or the Jews were sought to be exterminated by Gentiles. I mean, it was, this was hugely hostile. So, into this world, Jew, Gentile, citizen, non-citizen, slave, free, male, female, patron, client, all of these distinctions, into that world comes Jesus of Nazareth, And the movement called the church that was birthed after his ascension on Pentecost. Today's Pentecost Sunday. The birth of that movement by the power of the Spirit 
caused the earliest Christians to say things like this. Galatians chapter 3. Many of you are familiar with this passage. But to understand how subversive this was in the first century. Galatians chapter 3 verse 26. Paul's writing to Jewish Christians, disciples of Jesus, and Gentile disciples of Jesus. And they're arguing over how Jewish do you have to be to follow the Jewish Messiah. And so Paul's going to say this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have what? Clothed yourself with Christ. Now, when he uses the phrase clothed yourself, that means you have taken on an entirely new identity. Your status was often displayed by what you wore. So when you take on the clothes of Christ, that's Paul's way of saying you're an entirely new kind of thing. Yep. That was the code word for he's running long, guys. You better. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, I know we've heard this, but my goodness, imagine, imagine you're sitting in a little bitty church on the edge of the Roman Empire and you hear this. There is neither... Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now listen, you have to understand, in a church where there were men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free people, to say that all of those distinctions that were embedded in the Roman social system, were now irrelevant next to being clothed in Christ. You could not have imagined a more subversive set of words than these. The only thing more subversive done by the early church was the confession that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. Second to that is the idea that all the hierarchies don't apply anymore. I mean, this was ridiculous. Colossians chapter 3 says the same thing. Colossians chapter 3. You guys out there? Okay. Ah, yeah, yeah. All right. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on your new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Again, it's being clothed with Christ. This is just another way of saying it. Here, in the new self, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Flip over to Ephesians, flip back. I mean, these were the kinds of things the early Christians were saying, and nobody else was saying these things in the first century. Nobody. There was nowhere else these kinds of people would gather together voluntarily to worship. Ephesians chapter 2. I mean, we could spend so much time. This passage is so brilliant. Verse 14. He's speaking to Jewish Christians and to non-Jewish Christians. And he says, For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Gentiles and Jews, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, 
By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now we could spend all day on what that means. But notice this. His purpose was to create in himself what? What? One new humanity. He's not saying, hey, we want to create two groups. Jewish followers of Jesus and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. No, no, no. We're going to combine them into something that's never been seen before. Jews and Gentiles worshiping together into a new expression of what it means to be human. He says, thus making, his purpose was to create uh, in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Now, guys, this was so ridiculous. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. So churches, back in the day, met in homes. Okay? So in Acts, uh, well, we'll get to that in a second. We'll get to Acts in a second. But notice, Ephesians, same letter. Paul does all of this theology, and then he starts talking to specific groups in the church. So notice, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, what's the first word? Wives. Wives. So there were wives in this little bitty church. Verse 25, first word. If there are wives and husbands, then sometimes, chapter 6, verse 1, there are? Oh, we have some here. Kind of rowdy over there, guys. I like it. And Baker, this is your third service. Oh, someone's got to pray for me. Thank you. It's not working. Sorry, he's been here since 8.30, sitting in all three services. And he moves around. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, children. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. What's the first word? Fathers, chapter 6, verse 5. Chapter 6, verse 9. Masters. So, Paul, in writing a letter that says there is no more Jew and Gentile, he then starts addressing the different kinds of people that are sitting in the church. So he says something to husbands, and he says something to wives, and he says something to children. And then, and then he says something to masters, and he says something to free people. I mean, this, this was absolutely subversive. Acts, chapter 2. And the thing that made it, the the practice of the early church that made this so significant was something called the Lord's Table, the Eucharist, communion. Acts 2, verse 42. So notice, they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. A word about fellowship for a second. Fellowship, when I grew up, fellowship meant potluck, which is awesome. But, but the word, the word koinonia here means everyone has skin in the game. Everyone is sacrificing equally to make a life together. Okay, it's a costly word. It's not just a, hey, these are people I have fun with. It's like you've got to work at it kind of word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. We think this isn't a, just an ordinary meal. We think it's a communion meal. When it talks about breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who would need. Again, we talked about this last week. This was remarkable. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. The temple courts were huge and the Jerusalem church was big. They broke bread, again, this Lord's table, this communion. They broke bread in their what? In their homes. So they met, they'd have a large meeting, but they'd also meet in their homes. Flip over to Romans chapter 16. Really quickly, just the book over. Go to Romans chapter 16. When we think about what the earliest Christians were like, it certainly didn't look anything like this. Romans chapter 16, verse 3. This is Paul at the end of a letter writing, he's shouting out in our language. He's doing a bunch of shout outs to people at the church. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila. So we think this was a married couple. My co-workers in Christ Jesus, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their what? In their house. So when you think of the early church, what we think we're speaking of is groups of people that were 20 to 30 in size that would meet in private homes. The Jerusalem church was large enough that they actually met in the temple courts too. But one scholar estimates that if there were about 30 people, if there were 30 people in one of these, then this is what the makeup would have been. So this is Peter Oakes reading Romans in Pompeii. He says, if Paul's house churches were composed of about 30 people, this is typically, uh, possibly, what they would have uh, been comprised of. A craft worker in whose home they meet, along with his wife, children, a couple of male slaves, a female domestic slave, a dependent relative. Some tenants with families and slaves and dependents also living in the same home in rented rooms. Some family members of a household uh, who the head of that household himself does not participate in the church. A couple of slaves whose owners do not attend. A couple of free slaves who do not participate in the church. Some homeless people, a few migrant workers. Add to that some Jewish followers of Jesus, some Gentile followers of Jesus, some morally upright pillars of the community with some morally suspect anti-pillars of the community. And what you have is the most eclectic groups of people in the history of the world gathering in the face of one of the most structured and hierarchical systems ever devised in human culture. In other words, what you have is you have these little beds, these little communities of revolution, all gathered around what? This table, and this table was a picture, it was called the common table because there was no hierarchy See, even at mealtime, Romans would, uh, would sit themselves according to who had the greatest status and honor and who had the lowest. Only in churches would you find a former prostitute sharing the bread and the cup with a kosher Jew who was a follower of Jesus. Only in these little churches would you find slave owners serving communion to slaves. Only in the early church would you have rich people serving and sharing a meal with poor people. Where you would have men and women all dining together equally. I mean, this, guys, there's no way we can capture how subversive this practice was. And it was one of the reasons why the church exploded. Nowhere else in the world was this happening. 
where you literally put your rank, your, your status, your label at the door, you left it there, and you took part in a meal where everyone was equal. There was no such thing back in the day. Now, as a democratic society, we're all embedded with, yeah, everyone's equal. But for these folks, I mean, this was part of the revolution. So I was just thinking last night about the kinds of folks we have here. We have Republicans and Democrats sitting next to each other. All right, look around. Smoke them out. Whichever you think we've got more of. You've got single You've got married, you've got divorced, you've got widowed and widowers. You've got young, you've got old. You've got families. You've got biological families, adoptive families, stepfamilies. You've got couples that want to have children but can't. Couples that have children and wish they didn't. (laughs) You have couples that are around those families and determine never to have kids themselves. We have introverts and extroverts. And, and you know which is which when they say in church, hey, say hi to the person next to you. And all the introverts wither and die in that moment. And the extroverts are like, oh, I've already done it. <laughs> We've got rich and poor, male and female. We've got opposite sex attracted, same sex attracted. We've got people that prefer hymns. We've got people that prefer drums. We've got black folks, Latino folks, Asian folks, Caucasian folks, Persian folks, and everything else. We've got educated and blue collar. We've got upper class, middle class, lower class, and no class. <laughs> right? We've got homeowners and homeless. We've got inner city and suburbs. We've got abusers and victims. We've got thin and husky. We've got... Those today that are full of trust and love of Jesus and those that are struggling and doubting. We've got the morally upright and we've got the morally suspect. We've got the employed and the unemployed. We've got the healthy, the sick, the mentally ill. We've got the abled and the differently abled. We've got the broken, we've got the self-sufficient, we've got the ones that have walked with Jesus for five minutes and the ones that have walked with Jesus for 50 years. And we could go on and on and on. That is both the beauty and the curse of what it means to be the church. Because what is the hardest thing about being a community of called out ones? It's taking that and finding unity despite the difference. It's taking that. It's the same thing that made the early church subversive. That same subversiveness still exists. Because this should be the place and that should be the practice where all of the other ways of defining and labeling and structuring are rendered obsolete and irrelevant. This is the great leveler. There are only sinners that come to this table. There's no room for self-righteousness. Why? Because there's only sinners. There's only people that by faith receive God's grace. That's it. That's all we got. There is no other kind of person This is the most inclusive invitation in the history of the world. Whoever will confess Jesus as Lord will be saved. End of story. And this is so important. Paul gets really cranked up when it's violated. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul gets really upset at this church. One of the great things that you learn about the early church is they were far from perfect. And I think that's really awesome. 
Because we're far from perfect, right? There is no perfect church. If you find it, leave, because you'll ruin it. Is That's the old joke, right? Because there is no such thing. You just have churches doing the hard work of sharing life together. It'd be way easier if we were just around people just like us. Look like us, act like us, talk like us, believe like us, dress like us. That'd be way easier. But that's not the glory and the wisdom of what God intended for his community. The glory and the wisdom is of people who have nothing else in common. Sharing a meal together in the name of this Jesus. That's what was so beautiful. And so Paul gets upset when that's violated. Now, he's writing to a church in a city called Corinth. That was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. In fact, to be a Corinthian was just slang for being immoral. And so we have a little church, and not shockingly, they're a little squirrely. So he gives some warnings attached to the Lord's Supper that we often misunderstand because they're warnings directed to believers. Notice this, verse 17. He's writing to a church of 20 or 30 people. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Can you imagine a church hearing that from somebody inspired by the Holy Spirit? Hey guys, you're gathering, it'd be better off if we didn't have it. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Now, he's already addressed the fact that some of them prefer Paul as a teacher. Some of them prefer a guy named Apollos. Some of them prefer Peter. Right? I'm so glad we've moved beyond the personality-drivenness of the first century church. Verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who what? Have nothing. Now here was the thing that had Paul all cranked up. Are you ready? Hmm, okay. Here was the thing. The rich people... We think we're eating early and separately from the poor people. And for Paul, this is unconscionable. Why? Because it's a common table. So we think Paul's getting cranked up because they didn't confess their sin or something. Maybe that's it. But the context seems to be that they were introducing divisions that Jesus had eradicated. He says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in a what? Unworthy manner. Now, there are all kind of guesses as to what unworthy manner means. Does that mean i got to confess all my sin before I take communion? Does that mean I'm... Uh, I mean, but the context seems to suggest that what they were doing that got themselves in trouble 
was they were separating themselves from each other and taking communion, which I find very, very interesting. He says, some of you, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you have, uh, are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's a Jewish way of saying they've died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Now what? If you're sitting here, you're going, what in the world is he talking about? Good question. And we could spend hours on all the different ways of understanding what he's saying. But he does all of that. You're weak and you're sick and some of you are falling asleep. That's how serious this is. And then notice the advice he gives them. Paul, how do we escape this? Notice verse 33. So then, therefore, in view of this, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat what? Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you eat, excuse me, when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, we could spend hours on what he's talking about here. But I just want to present you with one very simple idea. That this meal, being a place where there are no hierarchies, was so important to Paul, he actually calls out a church that was introducing hierarchy back into itself and says, you are bringing judgment down on yourselves for so doing. That is how absolutely significant this meal is. The warnings, now I believe this is for believers, of course. But people want to say, yeah, you always got to warn non-believers to take of the bread and the cup. And I'm like, okay. But the big warning I read about is given to the Christians. Right? This was written to a church who was violating the common table, reintroducing hierarchy and status where that had been previously eradicated. I mean, this, so evidently what we're going to do now is very, very significant. It is, first and foremost, an act of worship and thanksgiving. We do in absolute obedience. This is the gospel. Body and blood for you. But I want to open you up to the fact that this is also an act of defiance in our world today. Because what we're saying is, all of the demographic surveys, all of the way marketers label you, all of the ways you're grouped into generation Z, X, Y, whatever it is, all of the ways that people define you, People shape you and label you and assume things about you. All of those ways are irrelevant here. It doesn't matter what you've call, been called. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've come from. Here, this is the great leveler. So we all come the same way with nothing to bring than empty hands. That's all we got. So when we celebrate communion today, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to take the bread and take the cup and think about these things. Look around you 
And think about the significance of people who are not like you sharing the same meal. Now, I hate that these are little bitty crackers and little bitty cups of juice. Because back in the day, man, this was called a love feast. Potluck in our modern day language. And then at the end of that, you'd have wine and you'd have bread and it was a big deal. But churches weren't this size. So even today, this is just the representation of the kind of meal we'd be sharing in a home. But think about it, brothers and sisters. Where else in our world do people voluntarily gather who have nothing else in common but Jesus? Nothing else in common. They're willing to set aside all their differences for the sake of being together. Because in our togetherness, he's made beautiful. Right? It's not when people just like each other gather. No, no, no. It's when people that are gathering across the spectrum of everything that Jesus gets glory. So, close your eyes if you would. We want to invite our communion team up, and they're going to hand out bread, and they're going to hand out juice. If you're a disciple of Jesus, I invite you to take bread and to take juice. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, now's a great time to become one, or you can just let that pass by. No one's going to keep track. But I want you to hold the bread and hold the cup until we celebrate together in a moment. All right? So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we give you thanks for the great gift of your Son to us. Father, we acknowledge that in the body that was broken and in the blood that was spilled lies our hope, our freedom, our redemption. And it also, Father, in that body and blood lies our commissioning to be bearers of good news to be pastor honors of what we've received. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, may we take this bread and this cup in a manner worthy. By your grace and mercy, we pray, amen.